I know you've been looking forward to today because today we take up the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. There's a story about the late evangelist Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham. I'm sure there are many versions of this story. In an interview with Ruth in the days when Billy was on the road a lot, she was asked, Mrs. Graham, with Billy gone so much of the time, with so many children to take care of, have you ever considered divorce? After thinking a moment or two, she said, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. <laughs> of course, she was joking. And I suspect that few here today or watching this message have committed a physical murder or even considered doing so. However, I should warn you about getting too comfortable because the commandment against murder goes much further than the summary stated in Exodus 20, as we'll see when we consider the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. First, I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Now it's companion passage from the New Testament, Matthew 21, verses 21 through, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, rather, verses 21 through 26. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before you the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading of these words? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Of course, much more could be said on this topic than I have time to say today, especially concerning ethical questions of life and death such as abortion, euthanasia, suicide, and similar issues. But I will touch on them in the application section of this message. So my approach today will be to describe and define what murder is according to the Old and the New Testaments, and then to outline positive actions we can take to prevent murder in ourselves and in others. The Bible doesn't at first give us a definition of murder. Instead, it gives us the story of the first murder in Genesis chapter 4, shortly after the fall of man. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. I want you to notice two things in this passage that we'll see again in the New Testament. Number one, Cain's attitude of anger toward his brother preceded his action of murder. His brother's offering was acceptable to God, but his was not. This made Cain jealous of his brother and angry with him. Secondly, Cain's murder was a willful act of disobedience to God. God gave him the opportunity to repent of his anger and to avoid any sinful action. But Cain instead chose to turn his anger into murder. Also in this passage, we find the first penalty for murder in the Bible. It was not the death penalty, but a further cursing of the ground, which was already cursed because of, his, because of Adam's sin, so that Cain could no longer make his living as a farmer. Remember, he offered the fruit of the, fruit of the ground. This made life very difficult for him because at that time men were not permitted to kill animals for food. But later in Genesis, after the flood, chapter 9, God permitted killing of animals for food and then he prescribed the death penalty for murdering a human being. <clears throat> he said to Noah, I have given every moving thing that lives on the earth to you for food just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the life blood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Notice the difference between human beings and animals here. Human beings are unique in the creation because they are created in the image of God. That's what makes human life sacred and why it should be preserved by such laws and penalties. Because we are created in God's image. Later in Exodus and Numbers and Kings, we find descriptions of various kinds of murder and their penalties. I'm not going to give you every example that uh, the Bible gives, but I'm just going to give you a quick survey of some of those. In Exodus 20, in our passage today, verse 13, the sixth commandment teaches you shall not murder. It's a summary of what all the Bible says about this. It does not say you shall not kill, but it says you shall not commit murder. The Hebrew verb used here for the first time is a specific term for murder. It's never used for executing a criminal by the state or slaying an enemy in battle, in war. It is used for both premeditated murder and unpremeditated murder, or what we would call manslaughter. 
The verb is also used to describe killing for revenge, assassination, and negligent homicide. We also find stories of suicides or self-murder throughout the Old Testament, which are always cast in a negative light. But the penalties vary from one type of murder to another, as you know, just as in our system today. For some, the death penalty is prescribed. But in the case of manslaughter or unpremeditated murder, the law provided a measure of protection from revenge by the family of the deceased by sending the perpetrator to one of the cities of refuge for a period of time. Also in the case of negligent homicide, the law made it possible for the family of the deceased to choose a ransom instead of the death penalty. Moving on to the New Testament, Jesus teaches on murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by saying in Matthew 5.21, You heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now when he says, but I say to you, Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament itself here. Rather, he's correcting the misunderstanding of the Old Testament that many of his hearers had adopted. Their leaders had joined the Sixth Commandment in Exodus 20.13 with Numbers 35.30, which demanded death for murderers, which implied that the Sixth Commandment referred only to the specific act of killing or murder. Here, Jesus seeks to return his hearers to the original intent of the commandment against murder with a wide variety of applications. So we can summarize Jesus' teaching on murder in three points. Number one, anger harbored against a brother is the same as murder and can even lead to physical murder. Jesus said anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The death penalty. In other words, in God's eyes, unresolved anger is equal to murder. And as we saw in the Old Testament story of Cain and Abel, unrepented anger can lead to murder. Second, judging a brother or sister as inferior or worthless or as a liability to society is the same as murder. Using terms for others like the biblical word raka, which means stupid idiot, and the word fool, which means worthless, are not just evil names that we call each other. But they betray a condescending, contemptuous, judging attitude that says that the world would be better off without these people. This attitude is also equal to murder in God's eyes and liable to the hell of fire. And incidentally, it doesn't excuse us when after using such terms, we say, bless their heart. <laughs> Number three, unresolved conflicts with those outside the church can lead to imprisonment and even murder. Jesus said, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him with the court, going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. He's speaking of someone, usually outside the church, whom you have made into your enemy 
by causing them anger or harm in some way. For example, cutting someone off in traffic. Or a car accident that was your fault. Or a personal debt that you have not paid back. Or some other law that you've broken. That person or the state, in some cases, is angry with you. Angry enough to have you thrown in prison or worse. So, when these things happen, what should we do? What's our positive motivation for obeying this commandment? Listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Paul wrote, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Our motivation is love for one another. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for all other human beings. Even love for our enemies. Because Christ loved us first when we were his enemy. Then how should we apply this commandment? Here are several ways to consider. Number one, resolve conflicts quickly with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus urged his hearers that day to promote and hasten the process of reconciliation with fellow believers. He said, if a brother has something against you, you go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them and be reconciled. Reconciliation also, he notes in this passage, is more important than worship. It says, lay your worship down, go and be reconciled. <clears throat> Get it right before you attend worship, if at all possible. Now, it may be something you actually did, or it may be something that they imagined that you did. Even if you think you are innocent, if you notice that their countenance falls when they see you, or if it troubles you, go and seek to be reconciled. Be it, as much as possible, be at peace with all men. Because unresolved conflicts only get worse over time. Number two, consider others as more important than yourself and build them up with your words. Instead of judging others as worthless, as Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And remember what James 1 says about our tongues. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Number three, resolve conflicts quickly with your enemies. Jesus also said, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with, going with him to the court. In so many words, Jesus is saying, try to assuage their anger against you. Try to settle it out of court so you can avoid a longer sentence or a steeper penalty. Try to keep them from wanting to murder you. 
A number of years ago, I was uh, driving into a parking lot <clears throat> where there were some stores, a strip mall, and uh, I pulled into my space and I realized that I, too late that I had cut off someone else. Well, they found another space. I didn't pull out like I probably should have. They found another space. Well, we ended up in the same store. So I went over and apologized to them. And they thanked me and forgave me. And they said, aren't you the music director at Myrtle Grove Presbyterian Church? <laughs> I was so glad I did it. <laughs> Number four, know the symptoms of suicidal thought. Seek to help yourself if you're having these thoughts. Seek to help others who may be having these thoughts. If you or someone you love is seriously depressed and perhaps is considering suicide, they may be tempted to think the following two thoughts. Number one, I'm a burden to my family. Number two, they will be better off without me. So you should reassure them that this is only temporary, that they will recover in time. And you should encourage them to seek counseling with a pastor or professional counselor. In addition, you should ask them these three questions. Number one, have you considered suicide? Number two, do you have a plan? Number three, do you have the means to carry out that plan? And if they say yes to all three questions, you should take immediate action to get professional help for that person. But note that you will not cause them to commit suicide by bringing up the subject. But by bringing it up, you may give them the opportunity to talk about what they're feeling and perhaps prevent it. Number five, act with diligent care and attention in any area of your life that might cause the untimely death of another person due to negligence. The lawful term is gross negligence. So we should act carefully and attentively in our work, in driving our cars, some who fly uh, planes or other uh, motorized vehicles, with firearms that we might have, with our children, with our elderly parents, around our homes, in our neighborhoods, any other area that might cause a significant danger to another person. Next, attempt to stop abortion on demand. This includes not only seeking to change legislation through voting in the right persons, for, uh, for example, but also providing tangible help through counseling or meeting material needs for those who are tempted to abort their children. Number seven, attempt to prevent euthanasia, or what we call mercy killing. The current laws in most states exist to protect those without a voice. The disabled, the terminally ill, the elderly, 
who might otherwise feel pressured into ending their lives prematurely. The value of a life should not be determined by its benefit to others or what it can contribute to society, but rather that human beings are created in the image of God. Next, when a person is dying of starvation, disease, or natural disaster, do everything in your power to save their lives. For example, refugees whose lives are in danger in foreign countries may need to be allowed to find sanctuary in our country, even though some jobs may be taken in the process and some economic sacrifices may have to be made by us to find a place for them. Finally, be willing even to lay down your life for others. 1 John 3 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And once we've made the decision to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters, we find it possible to put the interests of others above our own. Then we can, in fact, take up our cross daily, dying to ourselves, which is what the New Testament tells us the Christian life is all about. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for your word how it guides us in all of our lives. Enable us to apply these truths and these applications wherever they fit for us, individually and corporately. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.